Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. into the, <laughs> the Bible. Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going. Believe it or not, for those of you who are with us, we're wrapping up a series on the first half of the Bible, with it, which is Genesis 1 through 11. And some of you right away are wondering, how in the world does Genesis and Easter work together? Uh, maybe even more puzzling to you is the story we're landing on today to conclude this series is the story of the Tower of Babel. What in the world could the Tower of Babel have to do with Easter. Friends, as we've been going through this series, the reason we've been giving time to this series, these first 11 chapters make up the first half of Scripture, which help us as a foundation understand how the rest of Scripture is constructed. It helps us make sense of the story of the whole of Scripture. And all of us know what it's like to have deep questions in our own lives. All of us know what it's like to have our own story and wonder, is there an overarching story that makes sense of our stories, of my story? And that's why we've spent time in this series. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. And somehow we're going to make it from Babel to Easter. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Let's pause there for just a moment. What in the world is going on here? If you've read through the beginning parts of Scripture, if you've been tracking with us through this series, we understand together that right from the beginning, God has an incredible purpose for humanity. In Genesis 1, verses 22, and then echoed again in verse 28, God blesses people after he creates them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Can everybody say fill? Everybody, that was very good. I was just wondering, I don't know if we have anybody named Phil here, but that would be a nice moment for them. Everybody's just, uh, Phil, there he is. Yes, Phil. Fill the earth. And what, what's happening in Shinar here? People have gathered together, and they're not planning to fill the earth any longer. What are they trying to do? Build a city, build a tower, reach the heavens, stay, not scatter. This is a reversal against the purposes of God by humanity. Oh my goodness, how many times have we seen this in the first 11 chapters? Independence versus dependence upon God. Again, humanity gathers their efforts together and resources and says, how about if we became an independent front? And we built a tower to the heavens and we became God and we made a name for ourselves and instead of filling the earth, we stayed. This is rebellion, this is... A reversal, it's a parody of what God's intended for his creation. Now, you may have noticed that the, as the chapter opened, it said they had one language. 
If you read through the first 11 chapters of Genesis closely, you find in chapter 10 on a few occasions, it actually speaks to the fact that they're already speaking multiple languages on earth at this point. So what in the world does it mean in chapter 11 after that fact that there's one language? Can I submit to you today that it really has less to do with this idea of one common language, but one common mantra? There was one way of looking at things for all people on earth at that time. I might propose to you that the mantra could have been something like this. Uh, the reverse Lord's Prayer might have been the mantra of humanity at the time. So instead of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, their mantra, it seems, was our kingdom come and our will be done all the way up to heaven as it is on earth. It's as if humanity said, hey, we think we figured out how to rule this place on our own, thank you very much. So if we could build a tower, get to heaven, we could do a takeover up there and then rule heaven as it is on earth. That's their mantra. Humanity was so unified, it was scary. It was not good for them, it became destructive. Let's carry on. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. Um, in the Hebrew language here, there's a little bit of a play on words that's occurring here. When it says the Lord came down to see, you could almost inter interpret it this way. God came down and squinted. Or God bent as low as he could to squint and see. Oh, you're building a tower. Oh, you know, it's, it's Genesis' way with the beautiful Hebrew language of saying, God is so grand and so great that when we do our most impressive thing, go to Dubai and see the highest tower, God's like, oh, that's Dubai, is it? Okay, neat, good job, guys. And I'm okay, he's not, he's not condescending like that. But he is squinting. And here's the reality, friends. God still evaluates what our lives are building. He looks at your life, he looks at mine, and he's evaluating, what is that actually building? Are you building a kingdom for yourself, or is it for his name? Are you doing something for your name, or for his? And when God evaluates that, evaluates our lives, just as he did with Babel here, he's looking to see, is this something I can bless, or do I need to bring confusion? I'm going to tell you a quick story about uh, my first girlfriend and my last girlfriend. Um, my first, okay, so one thing I say to our kids sometimes is, if you're not ready to get married next year, you're not ready to date this year. And so I was, uh, I was in grade seven, and I was pretty sure I was ready to get married in grade eight. <clears throat> now, I was not overly ambitious or confident, and... Uh, I got a phone call one day after school on the landline, everybody remember the landline? And this girl called, her name was Dawn. Now she was, she was the agent, okay? She said, uh, I wonder what you think of this other girl, her name was Amber. And I said, yeah, she's, she's cool, she's fun, whatever. She said, okay, yeah, Amber thinks you're cool and fun too. Oh. <laughs> and so Dawn says as the agent, what if you guys like were boyfriend and girlfriend? I'm like. I could see that. Okay, I'll call her. So she gets off the phone, calls Amber back, and like that, I've got a girlfriend. I didn't call Amber to confirm or anything. I just knew it was done because um, I was ready to get married next year. Anyway, so I go to school the next day, and I'm scared to death. 
<laughs> I played so many games on the uh, field. I played Foursquare. I, I played all the things because I was ready to get married the next year, right? That's what you do when you're that mature, right? You just avoid your woman. And so there I am, totally avoiding her, and uh, then the day finishes, and I didn't talk to her once the whole day. I'm like, this is a pretty successful day. This is how a relationship could work, I think, because it always gets in trouble when you talk too much, so I just erred on the side of caution. Anyways, get home, landline rings again, it's Don, the agent. She said, how's your day? Oh, good day, yeah, great day. Four square, football, soccer, all the things. She's like, yeah, 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 yeah. How was, uh, how's your girlfriend? Yeah, yeah, great, it's great. She said, yeah, did you guys talk? I was like, well, hmm, uh, well, come to think of it, actually, I was pretty busy today. I don't know if we actually did talk. She said, you know, I was talking to Amber about this. She said she didn't actually talk with you either, and so I'm just wondering, maybe it's better for you guys to be friends. Not, I'm like, you know, you're probably right. It is pretty complicated. I've, I've got a busy life. I'm trying to make things happen here. I'm ready to move on. And so uh, she broke us up. And the next day I was very comfortable with Amber. We were buds again. It was totally great. Now I contrast my first relationship <laughs> with my relationship with Laura. And every relationship takes work and has its moment of challenge and figuring things out. But I think God was evaluating what my life was building, and it was quite clear to him, I need to add confusion to grade seven, Mike, trying to have a girlfriend. And then along comes Laura much later in life, and instead of confusion, God brings blessing. God looks at your life and mine to see what it's building. And there are times, friends, that out of his mercy and grace and love, he adds confusion so that you don't totally destroy yourself. And one of the ways you can know that you might be on God's path is when there's additional signs, instead of confusion, of blessing. Now, just let me say, because there might be a married couple in the room today who you're experiencing some confusion, and you're not alone. It's okay, okay? But I just need to say it in case your mind's going there. Confusion in your relationship, if you're married, does not mean divorce. It means take the marriage course in a couple weeks at our church, okay? <laughs> and let God help reorder some of the things in your own heart and life. Okay, we got way off track there, but you get the point. Let's carry on with the story. Verse six, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do all this, then nothing they can plan to do will be impossible for them. I wanna just help make sure you understand the tone that's occurring as God is making these observations. This is not God feeling like a threatened rival. Oh no, look at what humanity's doing. Wait, if I don't squash this, they might overthrow me. He's not intimidated. This is the sound of a concerned father, a concerned creator saying, oh my, if they carry on in this way, it'll bring so much destruction to them and to this world. God and Genesis are sending a message to you and I through Babel. <laughs> that when we build our own Babels, they are always doomed. You see, Babels are built in a way that there's guaranteed self-destruction. You know, it was interesting earlier in the text, we've, we heard that they were celebrating this fact that they were mixing up and making bricks together. This was an advancement. Now, there's nothing wrong with bricks, 
But in this story, it's contrasted against what? What did Israel use? It said in the story, they used stone to build. Let me ask you a question. Which material did God make? Stone. Which material did people make? Brick. Nothing wrong with brick, but in this story, this is a contrast between the things that people make without God versus the things that God makes. When we build our lives with the things that people make things with, it's doomed to self-destruction. When you build your life with things that only God can do and only God can make, there can be blessing. Babel always self-destructs. Babel promises power or promises everything your hope is hard, your heart is hoping for in that moment, but it only ever and finally delivers pain. Let's finish the story. Verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole world. There's two questions I want us to think about quickly. Number one, what does Babel represent? At best, Babel represents people trying to work their way to God. I'm pausing because there's a slide for this. There, there it is. <laughs> and at worst, Babel represents people be, being or becoming their own God. I, you know, there is a way we can look at the story and say, well, you know, this looks like people trying to build a staircase up a tower to heaven. You, know, you can work and 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 try to get to God. It'll exhaust you. It'll fail. At worst, it's people being their own God. Always self-destructive. That's been the message over and over again through the beginning chapters of Genesis. So the first question is, what does Babel represent? You see it there. Here's the second question. If this is the end of the first half of scripture, this is how it ends? <laughs> like literally the last words there are from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. If you were writing the Bible in two parts, wouldn't you end with something a little more triumphant? It's like, uh, Babel didn't work and now the people are scattering. How do we make sense of this really anticlimactic ending to the first half of Scripture? Now, you and I live in a day and an age where we have the privilege of being able to look at the whole of Scripture, both halves, Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 all the way through Revelation 22. And I want to point something out to you. The first half of Scripture ends with a story about what? God and the city. And the second half of the Bible ends with what? A story about God and a city. I want you to see this with me. At the end of the first half, the language is this. Come, let's build. That's what humanity is saying, and they, they build what? Babel. At the end of the second half, as Revelation is concluding, what's the language? Fallen, fallen. What has fallen? Babylon. It's the same word as Babel. Babylon. All the efforts of man to try to reach God on their own. All the efforts of man to try to become God. In the end, it finally falls. The end of the first half of the Bible, humans want to become gods. The end of the second half, God has become human. He's actually moving to be among people. God dwells with them. The end of the first half of Scripture, a humans, there, there's a human city reaching for the heavens. At the end of the second half of Scripture, God's city is coming to earth. Look with me now at Revelation 21. It says this, Then I saw 
A new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. That's descriptive language. It doesn't mean there's no oceans in eternity. It means there's no chaos. Seas in the ancient world represented chaos. This was a hopeful message to them. Wow, in God's new world, there's no chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with people. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said this, behold, I am making all things new. Oh, that's a beautiful way to end our story in scripture, isn't it? Now, how in the world did it come to be that God says, I am making all things new? How did we get such a drastic change between the end of the first half and the end of the second half? Can I submit to you today that Genesis 11 gives us a very big, helpful clue There's an ancient literary device called a chiasm. Can everybody say chiasm? Some of you may have heard of this before. I want you to see what a chiasm looks like or can look like in a story. As a story is unfolding, there's a beginning to the story and there's an end to the story, but in the middle somewhere is a focal point. And this is a technique, it's used often in Hebrew writing in the ancient world, where what they do intentionally, and this helps hearers remember and readers remember and readers understand what the main point of the story or the text is, is at the beginning, something is said that at the very end of the story is mirrored in some way. And then you go to sort of part two of the story, and what you find is the second last comment at the end of the story, it mirrors part two. Then there's part three, and then the third last part of the end of the story mirrors that, and they keep going up and up and up until right in the middle is something that's unmirrored, and it's the focal point. And the ancient Hebrew authors would write certain stories in this way so people would understand, we must pay attention to this story. There's something significant to be known and learned in here. What is at the focal point of the story? So I want to share with you the chiasm that's in Genesis chapter 11, the story of Babel. Look at the beginning right now. In verse 1, we see the whole earth. It's spoken of. What happens in verse 9? Same language shows up again. Whole earth. Next. Verse 2, people settle. Verse 8, people disperse. See how that's mirrored and reversed. Verse 3, people speak. Verse 7, people don't understand. Verse 3, the people say, come, let's make. Verse 7, God says, come, let's confuse. Verse 4, a city and a tower. Verse 5, a city and a tower, what might be the focal point of this story? There is one line that is not mirrored, that is not echoed, and it is the message of the story of Babel and God. Verse 5, the first words are this, the Lord came down. What happens when humanity tries to work with the best of their own efforts to reach God? God comes down. 
What happens when humanity asserts its own independence and arrogance and says, I'm going to become God? The Lord comes down. This is how the first half of scripture ends, with confusion and chaos. But the focal point is God wasn't absent. The Lord comes down. That's how the first half ends. You talked or you went through the second half and the ending of it with me. It ends in a beautiful way with a city and the Lord and his, his city coming down to earth and he makes his dwelling with us here on earth. Something's happened between the end of the first half and the end of the second half. Friends, what is it? It's Christmas and it's Easter. The Lord came down. Let me read for you from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing. Sounds like he's coming down, doesn't it? Made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself down and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, the book of First Peter would suggest that Jesus descended even beyond the cross and death itself to the place of the dead, as low as any human could ever go. Colossians 2 says this, that when you and I were dead in our sins and in your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled its written code and regulations that were written against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. At 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It was sin that made death so frightening and the law code guilt that gave sin its leverage and power. But now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Down, 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 victory comes doesn't stop at a cross, friends. There's up, up, up. Luke chapter 24 says this. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Friends, so many people in the Comox Valley are looking for the living among the dead. You won't find it online. You won't find it in social media. You won't find it in a conspiracy. You won't find it in the most fulfilling career or family. You will find it only in this one. He's not here. He has risen. Romans 6, 9 says this. Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death has no mastery over him. Friends, he came as low as he could. He went down, down, down. The Lord came down, but then he rose up, up, up. And Romans 6, 5 says, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Babel meant at worst working hard towards getting to God. It exhausted humanity. You've tried it. We fail at it. At worst, Babel represents us trying to become our own God and it only ever leads to destruction. But Jesus and his resurrection friends have saved us and rescued us from both Babels. Friends, you and I don't need a staircase with a tower. We need a savior on a tree. We need a savior who's risen from the tomb. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Philippians 2 says, God exalted him where? Up, up, up to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Salvation, Acts says, is found in no 
one else. For there is, friends, no other name under heaven given to mankind, mankind by which we must be saved. The Lord came down. But death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't keep him. He raised in triumph, victorious over the worst and most feared enemy of all, death itself. And friends, if he's conquered the grave, it's all the proof you and I might need to trust in that he has authority over all things. Would you stand with me together today as we move towards a conclusion? I want us just to lift up the name of Jesus. Friends, some of us need to abandon our attempts to build our own kingdoms, our own names, our own babels. It will only exhaust you. You will only fail. It's only brick that will eventually self-destruct. There is one name and there is one name alone. Let's worship together. As we move towards concluding today, I'm going to invite our prayer ministry team to come forward and make themselves available right now. Two things I want to say for those of you who may need, receive, may need to receive prayer today. Romans 10 verse 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that means you're not. It means that the things you're most afraid of in this world, in this life, they're not Lord, but Jesus is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, you trust in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be rescued. Now, there might be somebody in the room who's just saying, you know, I've been exploring this faith thing, but I'm just teetering on this resurrection thing. It seems so impossible. And I want to believe. Friends, do you know that wanting to believe is trusting? Those of us in the room who have been lifelong Christians, there are some people in this place who are brilliant scientifically and they, they understand all kinds of arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. All of them, everyone in this room, at the end of the day, it still comes to us having to trust in something that feels too good to be true. It seems impossible. This might be your moment, friend, to say, okay, well, if that's all it takes, God, I'll trust. be great for you to receive prayer today. The second group of people that I think it would be worth you coming forward to receive prayer from somebody as we conclude our service. Somebody needs real hope. There is just something. We prayed about it earlier, but there's something you would benefit so deeply from having somebody pray with you. Friends, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it truly does mean hope for every person and hope for any circumstance. Let me pray for us as we conclude. Father, we give you thanks for your work in our lives and in our world through Jesus Christ. You have given such a signal of hope and life. And our, worth is, our world is still so full of death and discouragement and difficulty and despair. And there are times we feel it so deeply ourselves. We need the living, risen Lord's work in our lives today and moving forward. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you empower each person, that you infuse hope into each of our lives. Father, the hope and the help and the truth, the life, the love that we've experienced in you, we pray that it would fill the everyday life of the Comox Valley. Use us, we pray, this year to bring an Easter message to a broken world. And we pray this in the strongest name, the one and only name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Well, uh, I believe churros are here. Do we have any thumbs up from anybody who knows? I think, are the churros here? I hear some shoutings of yes from the lobby. 
Yay. Okay, it sounds like there's churros, there's Milano's coffee. So you can go grab some from the lobby. Come back into the auditorium if you're looking for a place that's not as crowded. God bless you. Happy Easter to you. He is risen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.